So a friend lent me her suit. I wore it every day, like a skirt suit, and I had these old-fashioned vintage pumps, and I just took the subway down to Wall Street. So I had a totally different life. I was like 29, and part of me felt a bit like a loser. I had lots of friends who, by 29, were already sort of climbing the ladder, right? And I had just finished working at the, for this amazing designer, and now I thought, well, what am, who am I? I'm working an hourly wage. It's like the last 10 years didn't happen. And what am I doing? This is Sasha Shout. That was Virginia Johnson. And you're listening to Dear Seekers, a podcast exploring and celebrating the process and practice of seeking through honest conversations with creative women. Virginia is a Toronto-based textile designer, painter, and illustrator. And she's also the author of Travels Through the French Riviera, a beautiful coffee table book marrying dreamlike watercolor illustrations with practical travel guide. I'm actually going to South of France in just a few weeks, so I'm definitely going to use her book as my guide. Her clothing line has been picked up by major retailers like Barney's, Anthropology, Horanfrew, and her illustration has been commissioned by Vogue, New York Magazine, Flair, and so on. From working as a PR assistant at Helme Lan to a secretary at American Stock Exchange, from opening to closing her physical clothing store, and from being a textile designer to an author, Virginia says life is like a book made of different chapters. There are twists and turns. Some chapters meant to be longer than others. Some are more exciting than others. During our conversation, she shares the mistakes she made when starting a new fashion label at the age of 23, and the lessons she carried with her. She talks about the advice she took and the ones she chose to ignore, and she also shares how her mom becoming a published writer in her 70s has inspired her to never let herself age into irrelevance. This conversation was recorded on a Thursday night after my nine-to-five job, so I was slightly more tired than usual, but that didn't discount the amount of enjoyment I had. Hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and please remember to leave us a review or comment so more people can find us and get to listen to these amazing women sharing their stories and wisdom. I really wanted to share how we met because、yes. I feel like that's almost kind of like very, universe. <laughs> yes, but us together. Very fun. I know. Funny. Yeah, I was just remembering that. It's so funny. So I'm gonna go ahead and、mm-hmm. start sharing that. I was walking on Queen Street, and then I love going to Thai Books,、mm-hmm. and then I totally ignored the sign out there say、mm-hmm. private event,、mm-hmm. and then I walked in. I was like, wait, there seems something is going on here <laughs> other than regular day, and then I saw your book. I fell in love with at the first sight, and then I saw you were talking to people. I assume you were the writer of that book that was launched that day, yeah. Which is so interesting. The more I dig into it, the more I found you you intriguing. There's so much about you that fell out of research. Thank you. <laughs> so I think you were one of the first people there that day. Yeah, I, think. I, I, you were I there was the second person. Early, yeah. <laughs> 
and we had left it you know people were allowed we weren't going to firmly shut the door it was if people wanted to come in they were welcome to join yeah but, but you yeah. just say private you did it closed yeah. for a private okay, event okay. yeah so I'm i was glad you intruder. didn't see the sign so nice. <laughs> no and then we met again at pinterest that's event, right. which that day you mentioned you actually didn't plan to go because right. that day was, it was huge, like a crazy snowstorm. snowstorm yes yeah yeah. So how was it like growing up with a um, a mom who is a writer? So she, well, so she really became a writer at age 70. I mean, she, a published writer at age 70. So she, no way. she, yes. Isn't that inspiring to all of us who feel wow. like we're getting old? Yeah. So she um, was always very, very creative growing up. When I was growing up, she loved theater. She painted when I was about eight or nine, she started a publishing business. She started a parenting magazine out of our basement and then moved it off site and created this monthly magazine for parents. She's And so she would editing people's work then and she would write her editor's letter. And so she and she had submitted um, children's stories that got rejected. And so she was always sort of wanting to get into writing. But when she was 69 or 70, she wrote this memoir of her moving back into my grandparents' house after my grandmother died reconnecting with her through her letters, won a prestigious award, and then she became a best-selling author. And so this has been a whole new life. So it's very exciting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of ins- very inspiring. How mm-hmm. was it like to be a witness, to witness to her, that. to having something on the side? Amazing. Creativity, almost like hidden on the side. Amazing. I mean, she always, I would say, her creativity wasn't hidden because she was always painting or taking me to painting mm-hmm. classes when I like she was a very, very creative person and prolific person. And she invents a lot of things too. She has many patents and <laughs> she's a, she's multi talented. But I would say having her sort of narrow in on one thing and then become super successful at it later in life has been is astonishing and very empowering. And um, we have a good family friend who's a sculptor who's 99 about to turn 100 and she also taught art at the national ballet school for 25 years and her husband passed away when she was 70 and you think for most people that's sort of an age then that people sort of take a step back and slow down and that she became a sculptor at age 70 and up until two or three years ago she was still flying all over the world to get stone to carve like up until she was 96 or something this year she's not allowed to fly but it just is inspiring to think We get hooked to some arc that you do your best work in, I don't know, your 20s and 30s and 40s or something. And and it's so not true when you look at that, that if you're energetic and you love something, you can do it for, Mm -hmm. you know, into your 90s. I mean, it keeps you young and alive yeah for sure yeah and sometimes i also feel like we are all just so trapped into a body right or not not necessarily Mm -hmm. trapped but living in Mm -hmm. in a body for Mm -hmm. example then the body of course physically we age Mm -hmm. we age the aging is um undeniable Mm -hmm. it has to happen but then the soul could be Mm four years old could be 40 could be 400 years old for sure so sometimes i of course i i just say it's always always easier than done Mm -hmm. but it's inspiring to see someone else kind of like despite the mm-hmm. age and then still pursue something that mm-hmm. at that age might seem a little bit odd or, mm-hmm. or not possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think our culture focuses so much on youth and sort of best 30 under 30, best 40 under 40. And so you can really feel, oh, if I haven't done that particular thing or that particular, you know, you sort of get pigeonholed by the time you're in your 30s, you should kind of know what you want to do and follow that through. And it's sort of weird to people when you stop doing that and you switch to something else and they don't want to see you like that. Like it's a very, they see you how, you know, you've established yourself at age 30 or something. 
And so it's very amazing to think that none of that is yeah. true if you don't want it to. I mean, you can completely evolve and, and do other things and pursue other things and become really good at them mm-hmm. as you get older. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned about the 30 under 30, 40 yeah. under 40. It's I too feel, much. Yeah, it's too I much. Mean, it's, I had a moment actually uh, before I started Dear Seekers. Actually, mm-hmm. I was well, I was reading magazines and there are so many magazines out there trying to romanticize this idea of 30 under 30. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and I was approaching 30 at that time. So I was like, oh my God, I would never be that's, on those magazines. It puts pressure on, right? <laughs> yeah. It does put pressure I'm on. I'm already it. reaching my expired date. I know, date. I know. It, it's very... um sort of seductive the idea and it sounds sort of we're all sort of curious who are the 30 under 30 and it's just many times you know it's an arbitrary list you can't possibly pick the best of kind of anything most of the time I think because I think it's just up to your yourself whether you accept the sort of um, idea that you just age into sort of irrelevance or uh, that you're just tired and that your body won't do it anymore and that you just pick up some you know, retirement hobbies or something. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. It does not have to be that way at all. Mm -hmm. In the interview, you kind of talk about when you discover your aesthetic as a designer, Mm -hmm. as an artist, Mm -hmm. you almost felt like a little bit shamed or embarrassed by how colorful it was. Oh, right. So, so tell me about it. Okay. I didn't actually design. I mean, I didn't become a, a clothing designer until I was about 29 or 30. So, my whole 20s, I spent knew, knowing I wanted to do something in fashion, but not knowing what. And so interning at magazines and working at retail stores, going to design school, mm-hmm. working for a designer. And so it wasn't until I was um, 29 or 30 that I moved back to Toronto. And then that was the first time I started my own collection. And that's when I was sort of surprised at what came out because I had worked in New York. I had worked for Helmut Lang. I had, I had sort of absorbed whoever I was around so Helmut Lang was very minimalist white and black and I thought oh this is very me I love all the clothes and and so it was just surprising when I came to time when it came time to do my own thing I made just 10 samples I mean very tiny collection and they were all sort of sundresses and summer things with bright patterns on them and I had only just learned about silk screening so I had only just learned wow I can put my illustrations on clothes and I had never heard of this method before and but so my things were very very bright and a kind of kind of weird I mean not not weird but just unexpected I didn't expect what what mm-hmm. what that was and I'm not able to really design anything else like that's my favorite thing to do but when I went to my first trade show and that would have been in early 2000s it seemed that like everyone around me was very sort of like sophisticated muted mm-hmm. clothes right. and mine felt very I was totally embarrassed <laughs> And you just don't know when it's untried, when you have no feedback at all, and you have no idea if people are just mm-hmm. going to be like, who is that person? Because right. it's a brand new, it was a brand new thing for me. I'd never been a designer before or created yeah. my own stuff. And then... And probably the colors are pretty eye-catching. They were very bright. I couldn't <laughs> yes, hide everybody at was all. like, cannot yeah, ignore totally, you. <laughs> yeah, it was totally... It's weird because you don't think that you need other people's um, sort of kind of validation but you really do I mean yeah. you really kind of don't know until you and if you're doing something for the first time you really don't know until you hear people say oh I love that or or you if you just think it's a weird thing that's come out of your head that everyone's just gonna just say what the hell yeah. is that and that's yeah. the end of your short-lived kind of idea <laughs> when I first drew up the 10 samples I went down back down to New York and just had the samples in my bag and knocked on doors of my favorite stores because I knew that they wouldn't return my calls. And so that that I found surprisingly, I got two orders. And that was my first season was just 
Two you just stores. Walk into stores yeah. And knock on the door? They were the ones that I had already known and liked. I don't remember now if I had actually tried calling them first or not, but I knew that in general, you weren't going to get anywhere if you just called people. So I just literally had them in my bag because if it's an appointment and you have to sit down and people are busy, but just having them in my bag and saying, Hey, I just designed these things. Do you want to see? And they both said yes. And then they both, and it well, was, with stores. so it's one of them is called TG 170. And I don't know if she's still there. And one of them, Lori side, and one of them was Stephen Allen. He said yes on consignment. And she said, yes, yes. And it was just amazing. And so that was sort of the first thing. Okay. These people liked it. But then when I did the first trade show, then Barney's bought it like the very first season, which to me was like the Holy Grail, right? My most favorite store in the world at the time. I don't know what they're like now in terms of buying, but they're very open to they didn't have to have heard about you. They're very confident to just say this is great. I'd love to order a whole bunch of these skirts and dresses and whatever else. And so that was just a huge validation for me. It was amazing. Yeah, so and that, it's not only a validation for you as an artist, but also a validation for the market that yeah. you you do have a market there, right? Yeah, but you just really don't know. Like yeah. you really, really, really don't know until you try and then yeah. see. And sometimes it's no, there's no market, or sometimes it's yes, we love it. Or so I, I've only kind of it wasn't sort of finding my style. It was just that's all that would come out, and that's still all that will come out. <laughs> like yeah. I'm always gonna love brightly patterned things like yeah. I just I try but I found it so fascinating because now getting like older and older I kind of realized a lot of the things actually it was already you in, know in, way in, back. in us yeah mm-hmm. it's a, you know a way back you have to trace back and to see that plant that seed was planted long time ago right I found it interesting because we could be influenced by the people around us or the products or the trend or the media whatever Mm -hmm. but sometimes that what we actually like or Mm -hmm. love was always there Mm -hmm. do you feel like that about journalism yeah (laughs) yeah right yeah because you think that it's random earlier on Mm. because you're kind of all over the place trying to figure it out and then you realize that when it it becomes more and more sort of focused and even if you go away for it for even a few years or something you come back to it for sure and then I also feel the same way about shopping vintage antique as well Mm -hmm. like trying to find the treasures 10 years ago Mm -hmm. like that wasn't cool back then Mm -hmm. it was really really weird that Mm -hmm. a young girl would go to like all the Mm -hmm. old stuff and dusty and then Mm -hmm. smelly to find something that to some people might seem like a garbage right, right? right so at that time i had to say i was a little bit shamed shameful <laughs> because i feel like oh my god i'm so some, something weird about right. me and then you didn't know who you were at that time the right. sense of awareness it wasn't there so right it come back a full circle it's for sure true. is there anything recently did you discover about yourself seemed like a little bit surprising um, anything surprising recently um i would say No, other than just the kind of even if you get away from the thing that you've been doing for 10 or 15 years, it's still completely there. And you realize it wasn't just just like what we were saying. It's not a random it's not a random path, even though your life can take different forms. But it does all go back to that root, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of implanted in childhood that um, that you so even though you can kind of um, what am I trying to say? Like reimagine yourself or, or like my mom becoming an author at age 70. Those seeds though, when you look back, it's like, oh yeah. Okay. So that's why I did that. And that's, you know, I loved this part of theater and I loved editing other people's work for my publishing company or those things kind of all 
pull together. It's sort mm-hmm. of obvious looking back, but it's not obvious. Looking forward, you're sort of looking at the abyss. Oh, like, yeah. where, where, where is all this going? <laughs> for sure. But it, it's all... In hindsight, yeah. always easier. It is. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so looking back... Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I knew you went to art history at yes. Queens, and yes. then you also went to New York Parsons to study fashion design. Mm-hmm. Was it fashion design? Or yes. what was the specific I started, major? Um, it was uh, fashion design and construction, I think it was called. So how did you come from point A to point B? I mean, I do yeah. see some connections there, but I wonder how did that surface for you? Um, I I think throughout my teenage years, I always loved fashion. And that was sort of always my dream to, you know, I remember at, when I was 16, trying to um, break it to my dad, like trying to see if he would pay for me to take a four-week class in at fashion merchandising at, um, what was it? Um, now I can't even remember the name of the school and I don't know if it's still here. Fashion. Now I can't remember the name. Was it in Toronto? It was on Gerard and Young. It was not Ryerson, but it was some other name that had fashion in the name, like the fashion. I can't some remember. Fashion. Oh, is fashion. it OCAD? No, it was like <clears throat> Fashion Institute. It was some sort of obscure thing that maybe doesn't, I'm sure it doesn't think, exist anymore. Uh, I wouldn't maybe know Maybe I'm just it. making this up right now, but I think it was art and fashion school or, or something and i think it was and merged with ocad maybe okay yeah. maybe but i could be making this up right now so i remember well i re- <laughs> i remember just sort of being just dying to take that course and then i did take that course and i loved it and i i just sort of knew that i should go to university first and i really was interested in art history i feel like the art history really informed my eye a lot and i i love artists and i love going to museums and looking at my favorite ones and I feel like that informed my eye in terms of color and design and painting. So then I, I took a year off after that and worked at um, Club Monaco here. Part, like did part-time Club Monaco and part-time an internship at Flair magazine. Oh, you did Flair too? I did. Oh, yeah. Way when I was, I guess I was 21 or something before I moved to New York. Just to kind of see, as I said, I didn't know I wanted fashion, but I just didn't have confidence that I could actually design something. So I thought, well, I could maybe edit, be an editor or something. And in those days, editing was so, um, I mean, not editing, interning, sorry, was so, um, it was so much easier to get internships. People didn't really do it. And so if you just wrote to a fashion magazine and said, I want to be an intern this summer, they would say, sure. Like they wouldn't turn down. So the entry point was pretty low. Totally. No one, I mean, I don't know what it's like now because I haven't tried to be an intern in 20 years, but it was completely wide open most of the time. And to me, that was the most logical way to get experience right away because then immediately you've been working with the fashion editors. You get all this experience in terms of, is it something I want to do or not? And then when I moved down to New York, I got an internship at Marie Claire magazine and then one at Marc Jacobs when he was a tiny, tiny company. So it gave me a lot of firsthand experience right away. And so going into um, fashion design at Parsons, I just did a one and a half year degree, an associate's degree, where you learn um, draping, pattern making, sewing, and a little bit of um, fashion sketching, mm-hmm. things like that. So lots of hands-on kind of like yes. practical experience. I'm not a great sewer and I'm not a great pattern maker. Um, I'm not very exact about measurements and those kinds of things, but it was super helpful for me to at least understand the process of it. And um, so that eventually when I started my own business, then I was able to communicate with a pattern maker and be able to sketch and have the details that they would need to to turn it into a pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, I tried to start a business then for about eight months but it got no sales. I was like 23 and, you know, 
confident. What and, business was that? So that I, I, it was basically very, very high end luxury clothes that I created one sample set of silk and shearling. And like, it was very sort of like, I thought, well, the quality is as good as Oscar de la Renta. Well, so, wow. so at the time, you had a I did, I did. I thought, well, it's, I knew that it was really well executed, but I understood nothing about marketing and advertising and the dollars that go into a brand. Like it was a very good eye-opening experience for me. So for about eight months, so I got the collection made. I got in to see two or three really big department stores like Saks and Takashimaya. Takashimaya, I think that's not not on Fifth Avenue anymore, but they used to have open house days once a month where young designers could come in and show their stuff to the buyers. So I had all my samples there, but the buyer gave me really good advice. And she said, she explained that to me. She said, it might be just as good quality as Oscar de la Renta. And you've used, you know, beautiful silks and beautiful buttons and everything else, but you're an unknown name and you have no advertising budget and you're not going to be able to get a buyer at a large department store. You have to go with the same scale that you are. That was so helpful to me. So mm. go to a small store. You, someone might take a chance on you. A small store might take a chance on you. If it's the smaller stores know exactly who their buyer is and they know that they can buy for that exact woman. And you're going to have a better chance if you, with this collection or if you start again in the future, you go you, that, like that same level. And so that was so helpful to me. So I quickly went and got a job. I abandoned the whole idea <laughs> because I thought this is not, wow. this is, I'm barking up the wrong tree. But it was so interesting that you had no problem letting it go and pivoting right away. I somehow just needed to find a job. I think that's such an interesting insight, though, that that buyer actually generously so helpful. Sh- shared with you. Wasn't that so nice? Because I know a lot of like independent designers, when they graduate from school, they have like this grand idea of trying to be the biggest brand ever. For sure. And then they do have the skill or craftsmanship, but not necessarily understand the marketing the business side. side. Yeah. No, exactly. So I, they wanted to get into the biggest store. Right. And some sometimes it might happen. Right. But it's very, very rare. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I quickly realized I needed to find a job. One of my best friends from design school, she was really, really good at draping and pattern making. And I was better yeah. at sketching and drawing. And she went on to teach at Parsons for 20 more years. She would taught at Parsons. Like she had gone back as a mature student. And so she did all my samples for me. And so I just have so many fond memories of, you know, her making the patterns and, and fitting them all and, and making sure they were beautiful. And so they're very special to me. Yeah. Wow. So in a chronological order, so now you go back to other, like regular jobs per se. Yes. And then after how many years you started your real business this time? So the, the sort of short lived business, I was 23. And then when I was 29, I quit my job, worked as a temp for a few year for a few months um, at the stock exchange. I mean, I just I how did that come about? It was really it was really funny actually. Through um, well, I quit uh, the job at Helmut Lang. Um, I loved it, but so many long hours, and I just had no life. And so I had a summer, five or six months, I think, um, where I just was trying to figure out what can I do with my life. And what can I do where I'm just not going to be in an hourly job forever? What can I leverage about myself to kind of differentiate myself a bit? That's when I went, I went for an interview at Kate Spade. So that's when I started doing illustration work. But for the very first time, I thought, well, I could illustrate. Like, I didn't know that was a career, but I just thought, well, I, I can draw, can I? I can do some postcards. And I went to Kinko's and made up some illustrations and sent them to magazines and sent them to my favorite stores to just see, do you need an illustrator? And um, after doing that a few times, I got a couple of great jobs. And at the same time, I interviewed at 
Kate Spade, it's unusual, but as a company, they use illustration. So Andy Spade said, we could hire you for these invitations we need. So you actually met Andy Spade? Yeah, so it was small then. It was 100 people, but it was still felt even smaller. But he was the one who interviewed people. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That was 2000 and... And one. Do you remember I mean, what was your, yeah, his, uh, no. his impression on you? So he, I mean, they were so, um, I feel like they were so well ahead of their time. And he's very, very smart and very, very, they understood a lifestyle brand before anybody else. Yeah, that lifestyle brand is It was so common. tight yeah. already. I mean, it was so tight is the wrong word. So at that time, it was very thorough in every single thing right. from the office to the flowers to the, everything was so well thought out in terms of the mm-hmm. lifestyle around the product. And so during that time, I was doing illustrations, but to pay the bills, I got a job at the stock exchange. And wait, I had, wait, but we have to pause here. I don't get it. I was 29. It, and I felt like... How did of, you get that job, first of all? I, through then, a temp agency. I signed oh, up with a temp agency, right. which maybe was more common back then. But I thought, well... I think it's still common right now. Is yeah, it? Yeah, I, just, I just didn't understand the... <laughs> how, how did that happen? Well, I literally yeah. quit my job without a plan. And so that's how that happened. You're like, I have to make money. I, I have to make money. I have yeah. to figure out how to do this. And so I I somehow just went and registered with the temp agency, upgraded my typing skills and my Excel skills because I could make more money that way. Then got a placement with a, it was on the executive floor of the, it wasn't the New York Stock Exchange. It was called the American Stock Exchange, which was across the street and not, a, not as famous. So I was on the executive floor. So it was all the male executives and then a pool of secretaries. So whenever they would get sick, I would be called in. So one of them was on, I think, maternity leave or I don't, but I had a pretty constant job that summer. So a friend lent me her suit. I wore it every day, like a skirt suit. And I had these old fashioned vintage pumps and I just took the subway down to Wall Street. So I had a totally different life. I was 29. And part of me felt a bit like a loser because not, not like a loser, but like I had lots of friends who by 29 were already sort of climbing the ladder, right? And I had just finished working at the, for this amazing designer. And now I thought, well, what am, who am I? I'm working an hourly wage. It's like the last 10 years didn't happen. And what am I doing? But on the other hand, I also had a lot of fun with it because I could be someone totally different. And I was a really good secretary. <laughs> like I, I really just typed up people's reports and did ex- Excel sheets. And I hung out with the other secretaries and I it was like so much fun to have a different life and to go yeah. down to I forget Chambers Street or whatever the the stop was and then at the same time I was getting jobs from Kate Spade and then I got a big job from Holt Renfrew and Kate Spade book project so all of a sudden I was getting good illustration gigs that were meaning I didn't need to temp anymore and then I moved home permanently I think in early 2002 I started the business then kind of loosely without proper business plan. But the illustration work allowed me for three years to run the business without having to do waitressing, for example. Like I got some good gigs early on and then I was able to have the flexibility with my time to Mm -hmm. um, sew up a set of samples and start doing trade shows and selling and stuff. And and how did the... Uh, cause you did mention it earlier. You love drawing, love illustration. But how did that idea of actually forming at the end that or start from the beginning? How did you start thinking you could actually do it? Well, I had taken a couple of illustration classes at Parsons when I was in my early twenties, but I had been told by the instructor that my style was not polished enough. Like it was too loose. He was very over the top kind of sort of really pushing it very overly um, stylized illustration and mine was very loose 
Um, so we have some neighbors stop barking. Yeah, yeah. Just for the listeners <laughs> reference. The walls, I know. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah, it's exactly. like, what is that noise? <laughs> um, so I am. Um, hopefully, it won't continue. So um, back to illustration. So I hadn't really known that was a career, and I also thought uh, my style isn't polished enough to do anything with it. Then it was really just me saying, "What can I do?" and just thinking that by sending the postcards out that I would try and get some jobs. I didn't really have any validation yet that illustration was anything, but I had a couple of smaller jobs where I had to draw um, some shoes or some, I think Flair hired me early on to do some, to illustrate one of their stories. So I had a few little jobs and then the Andy Spade thing was huge validation because he really liked the illustrations a lot. Mm -hmm. So then that was huge to be able to do illustrations for for that company and right. then it led to a stationary line that i they have different illustrators every year and then it led to a set of books for them so it, and then i got an agent because i had this big um contract a big sort of um deal uh, and so i needed an agent so i was able to mm -hmm. get a great agent at the time because i had already this big sort of deal on the table right and i have a so, question here yes. though so for the first the buyer that told you you shouldn't pursue and then you listen to that advice mm -hmm. and then you stop pivoted right away mm -hmm. but for this person your professor told you that right. oh your your drawing is a little bit too loose and might, might not be for the market you didn't listen you kept going so what I do you think what mm. was the difference between these two um maturity because he told me that when i was 22 or 23 just like the lady told me that when I was 22 or 23 and I listened to her. But by the time I was 29, I guess, and also just a pragmatism of like, I, I kind of had nothing to lose. I had a temp job. I couldn't, I could always get a temp job. So I kind of had nothing to lose by trying these things. I felt that my favorite stores or my favorite magazines would also have a similar aesthetic where they would also like what I thought was nice of my, like what I wanted to illustrate and my style of illustration. And I found that to be true my whole life that usually the people that buy my clothes or that want to hire me to be an illustrator, I usually love them as a person and love them as a company also. So that somehow that worked. And I'm glad I didn't listen to that mm -hmm. teacher. Yeah. So and you're also glad you listened to that buyer. Otherwise I'm you very could glad. go down to that rabbit yes. hole of trying to sell to Yes. Sacks. but you never know you you might have worked it wouldn't have worked at a <laughs> it wouldn't have worked at a big company she was I guess I mean there's a side of me that's very pragmatic there's a side of me that lo loves to sort of dream big about things but there's a side of me that's very pragmatic so if she's telling me you're not going to sell anything I feel like she was totally right I mean I read about this with Whole Foods that the scale has to be right between the buyer and the seller so if you're really outmatched and one of like a retailer is really huge and you're really tiny, it's really hard to deal with those kinds of companies because you're outmatched in every way. So you can't just, if someone cancels an order, you can't just quickly sell it to someone else. You like Whole Foods ends up having to deal with bigger suppliers rather than the tiniest ones because their expectations, they need fulfillment, cooperation with their procedures and their vendor manuals and everything else. It's hard sometimes for a smaller vendor to mm -hmm. adhere to. The smaller vendor can grow and right. can then deal with bigger retailers, but it's tricky. So I think yeah. my pragmatism with that, with that was, whoa, she's totally right. And she just gave me a gift by telling me that early. And so I've got to cut and run and I'll come back to this maybe later. But it was a good lesson because when I started the next time, I was very conservative. I made only 10 samples, didn't invest 
hardly any money into it. Even when I did my first trade show, I knew that I had two orders under my belt that I had fulfilled. I think my orders totaled $3,000. They were about $1,500 each. And I know that, so that was $3,000 of income. And I knew that it would cost me $1,500 to produce it. So I knew that I could safely do that and go through the whole thing and experiment with, you know, learning how to ship things and invoice things. Even if they didn't pay me, I would be okay. So Mm -hmm. I just wanted to go through that so that when I finally decided to do a trade show the next season, I thought, well, the trade show costs $4,000. So do I think I can sell $8,000 worth of stuff? The profit is half. I think I could sell $8,000 worth of stuff. And then I sold 11,000. So, oh, wow. so so it was it's always that way. It's sort of a very simple math of, of saying mm-hmm. I'm not going to risk something that's going to put me under. I'll just, you know, go right. that way, grow it slowly. Yeah. And that was much more sensible for me to do then. So this so the second time around I learned that and kind of was much more kind of conservative mm-hmm. with it. Right. Like you did talk about you do dream pretty big and also you're really practical. So at that time do you remember what were your biggest dream was? I do remember it because I remember saying it to somebody that before I started the business, this was when I still lived in New York, I thought, okay, I'm going to move home. This was a big decision to move home and move away from New York. My biggest dream was selling to between three and five stores. And I thought if I can just sell to three or five, three to five stores over the next three years, I will have realized my dream and I'll be so happy. And just the idea of selling something that someone else will buy just made me, I couldn't imagine it, right? That was my biggest dream. And then that happened really quickly. And then it grew to more stores and more stores and more stores every year. It was really doubling every year. And so it kind of almost my, what happened exceeded my initial dreams. Like selling to Barney's was beyond my expectations. And then Kate Spade started selling my things in her stores. And so that was all very exciting. But my mm-hmm. most exciting moment was my very first order to TG 170. Of <laughs> it just bet. like it really was. It was, you know, I can't believe that it, that someone wants to buy my things and that and it's still it, I mean seeing someone wear my things is just still it still yeah. really makes me the most happy. You know, it's the happiest. Yeah. yeah. I kind of briefly knew you opened the store and mm-hmm. also closed it. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the journey. Yes. How, why did you decide to open it and why did you decide to close it? So I opened a store sort of by accident in, I think it was 2005 or 2006. So I had been doing the business for maybe five years. So I had a wholesale business is how I, when I started. And so that means basically you are selling your things to other stores and they sell it. So I had no store of my own. And that is a great way to achieve scale where you're the same tunic, you're going to get an order from 10 stores or 50 stores or 100 stores. And so you just get efficient about making that tunic and you show your collections twice a year at trade shows and then you ship on schedule sort of like that. That makes the most sense and it makes a lot of sense. Then you can afford to have more staff to oversee different elements of it. But when I, um, as I said, for the first three years, I sustained myself financially, mostly off my freelance gigs in illustration, and I worked out of home. And then after three years, I rented an office space on Ossington. So the rents were still cheap then that you could actually rent a storefront. It didn't matter kind of if you rented a storefront or upstairs or rent was pretty cheap. And so I just rented a space at 164 Ossington, I think it was the first space. And, um, and it had a glass window, but it was a whole, it was an office basically, but I had clothing racks inside. So people kept trying to knock on the door and ask if they could come in and see, you know, what I had <laughs> for sale. And I would say, but it's just an office. I am sorry, we're not open to the public. And then, so eventually I just decided, you know what, why don't I just open on Saturdays 
um, because I'll open on a day that we're not working Mm -hmm. in the office. And at that point I had one or two assistants. And um, so I just was a Saturday only. So you could afford to then because the rent was cheap. So Mm -hmm. it was just kind of a bonus. And so then I, I don't remember the lease was up or it was maybe three years or something. And then I moved to, I can't even remember the other address now. Uh, 132 Ossington. So then I moved a block south because it had two floors. So I took a bigger space where I could have a dedicated um, store and then have the office upstairs. And so I focused mostly on the office. I had a girl that worked in the shop, but then people could shop, Mm -hmm. you know, six days a week or something. Yeah. Real engine of the business was always the wholesale business. We weren't shipping from the store anymore. We were making the clothes and then shipping them to a local warehouse and having them shipped to mostly in the States, but some stores in the US. And then I did that for a number of years. I had the opportunity to buy 132 Ossington for, I don't know, $190,000 that I didn't do, what? which I almost didn't have to, you know, I wouldn't have had to work the last 10 years. It would have, you know, yeah, I, I had the opportunity to buy it, but I didn't have any money for a down payment and, and it had termites and I thought, oh, whatever. And so a group of artists bought it. So they became my landlord. Um, and, um, it's changed hands. It's now a motorcycle shop. Um, and then for some reason at that point, I, the lease was ending and I moved to, I think 2011. Um, I was just about to have my daughter. So I just remember being very pregnant and having to quickly find another spot. So then I moved to college street and did the same thing there where we were open, but we were working behind um, and then probably so around 2014, 2015, I just, I had two little kids and I just decided I wanted to have a much simpler life. Mm-hmm. My life had changed so much from when I started it. And all I could think about was just slowing down and wouldn't it be wonderful if all I had to produce in a year was a book. Uh, so my dream became, I would love to write a book on the South of France. <laughs> <laughs> and so it became really like, the engine of we were doing so many collections a year, we were doing partnerships with people, we were doing garden collections and candles and clothes, several collections of clothes a year. And uh, so I was, could never pick my kids up from school. Like I was just always extremely mm-hmm. busy and right. kind of frantic. So I just decided to scale back and kind of I didn't know what I was going to do. But I figured I really was reminded a lot of um, when I was 29 and sort of I had the confidence back then to walk away from everything and kind of start again because it wasn't it wasn't sort of what I wanted to do anymore or not in the same way I wanted to sort of reorganize my life. And um, so then I did that. I basically shut all that down and I pitched an idea to a publisher to do a book on the south of France. And... Um, she and it was specifically about a certain house in the south of France that I just was very compelling to me because Jean Cocteau had lived there and it was decorated by this famous French decorator and it sort of existed just as it did 70 years ago and it had so many different threads in it and she said well it's too specific of a topic no one would know this obscure house and no one would buy the book but if we if we expand it to be about the south of France people love France and then you could you know, we can imagine it as sort of a travel guide meets artist sketchbook and you can kind of do it through your lens of loving textiles and loving art and different things. And it, in the beginning, it wasn't supposed to be written. There was no written component. It was just going to be an illustrated book of my favorite things. But then quickly we realized after I did the illustrations that they said it looks too much like a children's book. It doesn't have any utility. And 
I said, but I love that it looks like a children's book. And so, <laughs> so that was interesting of just the process because, um, the publisher often, I mean, I don't know if this is often, but in this case, they were right. They knew better than I did. They're in the business of selling books. And so they said, it needs, to, we need to rethink this. It needs to have more structure. It needs to, we need to, maybe it's a road trip. Maybe it's sort of more structure by chapter that it's a place, different places. And then you need to have some anchors in it. You need to have maybe a map of each place. You, you've done all the details, but we need to take a step back and kind of orient people about where you are and have certain elements that repeat in each chapter. That was so insightful. And mm-hmm. they said it should be useful. Then people could use it as a guide and not just be a pretty book. I, as a, as a, the person creating it, just wanted to create and there you go. But that wouldn't have sold you know, right. people almost that's... like you create it, but then they help you package it. Exactly. Yeah. They needed to, they needed to advise me and, and sort of structure the, the process. They needed to come in with their expertise, which is mm-hmm. selling and marketing what is going to make it useful to people and still be beautiful and strike all the right notes instead of just my, if, if I just did a picture book, it really wouldn't have been. I mean, I, I, what would people have done with it? It's fine. But I don't like to buy books that are only, I like a book that has some kind of useful element to it as well. Mm-hmm. I think I, I'm still curious about, um, there's still a threat about sometimes you listen to people and sometimes you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I think you answered. I never know. <laughs> but at the time, you're right. I probably didn't, I didn't think they were right at first. Yeah. Is that what you mean about No, I when just the... wonder why like when to listen and when not to listen. I never know. It seems like your no, I never your know. way of listening to people um either is listen or not listening. I reluctantly has been working well, well with you. I reluctantly probably in hindsight I look back and think it was immediate, but when uh, going through the book process, I reluctantly had to agree with them, but I did not think they were right at first, but I didn't have a choice. <laughs> but because you've got <laughs> so they're the publisher, but then I realized they were right. So it wasn't just me saying, oh, yeah, you're right. At first, I didn't realize that they were right. I thought, oh, they're going to, it's not, it's not going to be the right decision. And it's, it's somehow going to take away from the artistic part of it. And, but they were totally right. So you don't always know. I'm completely indecisive. I'm the most indecisive person. So, and I never know who's uh, the right person to ask Scorpio. So what does that mean? not indecisive. Well, I am. I'm very <laughs> indecisive and I Usually never know. Usually Libra is. I'm a Libra, so I totally get it. I think you, it's probably true that as you get older, you know who to listen to more. Because 15 years ago, I wouldn't have known who to listen to, but I can probably tell more quickly now if it's mm-hmm. striking the right note. Usually if it's not clear, it's not right. But you know when it's right. Right. But you're just, you don't know when it's in between. Yeah, that's true. I like that. Are you ready for the rapid fire questions? So I didn't even know there were rapid fire questions. What <laughs> are they? I'm I'm not good at rapid fire. Oh, questions. these are pretty. Okay. I, I think they're pretty easy or okay. simple. If you could choose to be born in any city in the world in your next life, which city would you pick? Um, my immediately, I just think somewhere in France, like Paris or somewhere in the south. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you could be one person, past or present, uh, for a day. Who would you want to be? This is way too hard. I don't know what I would say. I might have to come back to that one. And I'll probably have to come back to all of them because I... 
not good at thinking on my feet like that. And if you could be having dinner with another person. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> which, I was like, who would you want to have dinner with? Um, you got to be someone you want to have dinner with. I'm sure there are 100 people I want to have dinner with. Um, I'm not joking that I'm like terrible at thinking on my feet with questions like this. Okay. I guess we have to come back to I those think, two. I think, I don't know, we might have to redo this whole thing after I, I, I might need to think about them. So now it's either or. <laughs> Would you either visiting the past or traveling to the future? 100% traveling to the past, visiting the past. Yeah, me too. My, are you? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think it says a lot about a person. Yeah. My husband is 100% in the future and I'm really? 100% in the past. Oh, 100%. No. Where yeah. would you want, which era would you want to go? 1920s. Oh, yeah. You too? Yes. 19-teens or 20s? Oh my God. Yeah. 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 I think so. For sure. So that's a package. Oh, I got a feeling that's going to be tough for you then. Based on your past, <laughs> your record here. <laughs> so now it's a three or less words to describe. Three or less words. Okay. Yeah, to describe the following terms. Okay. First is love. I have to describe love? Could be, or definition to be to you, or feelings to you, whatever comes to you first. Um, I'm really not good at this. Um, I just think of warmth and family and, um, I don't know. Two is fine, because it's three, three or less. <laughs> warmth and family. Okay. Travel. Inspiring and getting lost. Illustration. Um, color and uh, beauty. History. History. Um, I would say, I don't know what words I would use to describe. Something about just enriching and finding the soul of people. Virginia Johnson design. Um, that's a hard one. Uh, I would just say to me it's about color and pursuit of beauty. Okay. Are you glad we're out of a package now? Yes. <laughs> yes. And then are you, do you have any answers for the one person you want to be for a day? No. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I mean, th that's such a hard question. I feel like that and the dinner I would have to think about for a week. What? Um, I, I don't know. I mean. Nobody came to your mind? Um, I just blank out. I feel like I'm in school if someone asks me questions like really? that. So I would just say um, maybe... I mean, I could speak more generally. I mean, I, I would, I'm fascinated <clears throat> by creative people and artists and um, who would I love? One of my favorite designers still is Dries Van Noten. So I would say maybe that's who I would have dinner with. Was that one of the questions? Dinner? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm just interested in people who go their own way and who feel seem to feel confident about it from the outside but I'm sure it's not so um, but I always find him very um, just inspired by beauty and not caught up in all the not pressured by all the commercial aspects of the business but just keeping the artist inside mm -hmm. and um, and somehow managing to go back and forth between both worlds that's hard isn't it I think so Especially when you're that big, mm -hmm. right? I think that must be hard. And then um, who else? So that was sort of be somebody, one mm -hmm. of the questions was. And be someone was, for a day. That's hard. 
I've been, I mean, this is maybe two people I would have dinner with. So one is him. I don't know who I would be for a day, but I'll just give you two of the other one. Okay. Can I do that? Sure. Just that I started rereading last year all of the E.M. Forrester novels that I had read, like A Room with a View and Howard's End and um, I can't remember a couple other ones. Oh, uh, Passage to India. I reread them all recently and um, that to me is sort of the beauty in written form of just someone yeah. who loves the world, loves human interactions, loves uh, different social issues and somehow beautifully brings them all together in a yeah. beautiful text. Mm -hmm. So those would be my two inspiring people to yeah. have dinner with. Okay. Um, so now is, uh, what are you currently seeking or searching or longing for? Hmm. Um, I think I am always seeking new, I mean, I'm always loving to travel to new places and, um, meet new people. So I would say I am very excited to go to Greece and very excited just at the idea of being able to travel more and, and visit different places and sort of dive in more. And I, if I get to do more books, um, then it will give me an opportunity to kind of really hone in on a different place, which I just love doing that. And it's just sort of brought together all the things I love to do. And mm -hmm. it, it feels like how it did in my late twenties of sort of everything coming together to start my clothing business of the textiles and the drawing and the, the business side and pulling that all together. So it feels like a new kind of pulling together that I am excited to explore more of. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it's a uh, recommendations like local jams or books, mm, that's films. That's hard again. Let me just think for a second. Could be like a bookstore, could be like a flower shop, could be antique shop. Yeah. Antique market. So I used to love Smash Salvage that was on um, Dundas West. And I went two months ago, finally, and they've moved to Hamilton. I was so sad. They but, did? Yes. They How do you moved. know that? I went and I hadn't been in a year or something. And so anyway, but so I started yeah. following them on Instagram and then I just bought a rug and Paul just brought it to me. Actually, it's this rug right here. Oh. And I just cleaned it last weekend. And so I, I'm able, he's perfect because every day he just posts new things that he has for sale and then he'll even deliver them, which is so great. So um, that's a favorite um, store. And he's also just really nice. And I think I've known him for 10 or 15 years. And then um, what other favorite places do I have? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm not a foodie at all, but I just love my old favorite. So I love the back, the back patio at Taroni. As soon as the summer gets warm, I'm there very frequently. Which one? Um, the one on Queen Street. Oh. Yeah, just the old one. And then the donuts at Sued next door filled with Nutella are my absolute favorite dessert in the whole world. Um, what else do I love? Um classes at Toronto School of Art. There's um, a teacher uh, named Tom Campbell, and he lives in Stratford now, but he teaches a Friday morning painting class that I just adore. Mm -hmm. And he just plays classical music and oh. you just sort of paint models. And I love it. What other things? What did you say? A favorite? A could be books. Films. Books. I mean, type books. I love going there all the time. Alright, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, don't hesitate to reach out to me at sashadearseekers.com or slide a DM on Instagram at dearseekers. 
It would mean a lot to us if you could take a minute and leave us a review or comment on Apple Podcast. And you know what? Share with all your friends. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, and see you in a month. Until then, keep seeking. Thank you.